Good morning, 1045. Good, that was good and rowdy. That's what I expected from you guys, good. Has everybody's summer been wonderful so far? Have you enjoyed it? Who's been on vacation so far? Anybody? Who's been wowed by the South Carolina summer weather this summer? It's been like so cool. A little bit of rain that we had the past couple days too. Any students in the room, you're enjoying your summer off so far? Good, there's more. There's like one at the nine o'clock. Are you kidding me? So yeah, you're enjoying, any adults enjoying your summer off? That was a rude awakening, right? You get out of school, get a job, no more summers off. It's a little bit sad. Well, this summer I am excited because as Emma just said, we are starting a brand new sermon series called A Summer with Wesley. Now, I know maybe some of you in the room, you're like, I've actually not been a Methodist for long. I don't even know who John Wesley is. That's actually one of the reasons why we want to spend a little time digging into some of this stuff. And so I want to be careful to let you know, this is not like a lecture on Wesley every single Sunday, okay? There'll be other things that we're talking about as well. But we do want to dig back into kind of our historical roots, as Emma said. I mean, our church is embarking upon a historical time um, within uh, Mount Horb's life here in Lexington. And it's important, I think, for us to stress the fact that we have no intention of leaving our Methodist heritage or our deep Wesleyan roots. You see, this movement began nearly 300 years ago with an undersized man named John Wesley, about 5'3 is how tall he stood, but he had deep desire and fiery intensity that started a movement that became then the backbone of this church that has sat on the corner of Fox Glen and Old Cherokee for a very long time. And we feel it is very important that we revisit Wesley's missional convictions, his methodical discipleship, to best equip each and every one of us for the road ahead. So please hear me when I say this. God is not done with Mount Horeb. Amen? I believe that in the very core of my being. God is not done with Mount Horeb. There's a lot of work to be done. There's a world to impact. There are people to serve. And so our goal over the next six weeks is to spend a little time with Mr. Wesley and rediscover our spiritual pillars that he began with this Methodist movement that was at one time the fastest growing denomination in America years ago. For some perspective, in 1776, Methodists made up only 2.5% of the religious individuals in the colonies. That is one in every 40 people, religious folks, were Methodist. Within only 70 years, that number grew to 34.2%, one in every three. So in only 70 years, that's the kind of unprecedented growth that took place. It was incredible. Now fast forward to today, over the past 50 years, the Methodist church has experienced the exact opposite. 50 years ago, there were 10.3 million members in in the Methodist church in America, In the last 50 years, it has slowly declined to 6.5 million with no sign of a slowing of attrition. And I would argue it is because largely we have lost the original spirit and intent of John Wesley and his movement. So our goal together this morning and in the weeks to come is to hopefully rediscover and reinvest in the pillars that made Wesley, his efforts, so successful. So a summer with Wesley is what we're gonna embark upon. My favorite summer when I was a kid was when I was 13 years old. So I grew up in Indiana, and I grew up only a couple miles from my dad's parents. And so I spent time with them all the time. I saw them. I could literally go across the field to their house. I was with them all the time. But my mom's mom and dad lived in Minnesota, like hundreds of miles away. And so there was a summer when I was 13 where my parents decided to allow me to fly to Minnesota by myself and go spend two weeks with my grandparents in Minnesota. And so I remember my parents taking me to the airport. I remember they put a little sticker on my chest, and it was like, this kid can 
not fly with anybody. He was not approved by the airline. And so I had to literally sit in my seat whenever we would land and wait for somebody to come and get me so I could walk with them to the next place. But I made it all the way to Minnesota safely, and I met Mary and Gary Fiscus and spent time with them for two weeks. And it was the greatest two weeks of my summer. I enjoyed every minute of it. We did all kinds of really fun things together. My grandfather and I started a tradition where he bought a hat for me pretty much every time we were together, and it started that summer together. We spent time eating deli sandwiches and drinking Coca-Cola in a screened-in tea house in the backyard. I got to attend a Minnesota Twins game with my grandparents. We traveled to their lake house, and I got to sail with my grandfather. And to this day, that was one of the most special times with my grandparents. I mean, I got a sense of who they were, and what of them was in me. I got a sense of where I'd come from and, and also where I was going. And there was a sense of connection that I had with them. And what I discovered that summer was that to really get to know someone, you have to spend extended time with them. That's how we build relationship. And that is why we're gonna spend six weeks together this summer with Wesley, to get to know who he was and where we've come from and get to know also where we are going. So we wanna spend a little intentional time getting to know him. So in order to do so, we must begin back in the 18th century in Epworth, Lincolnshire, England. On June 17, 1703, John Wesley was born into a devout Anglican family. Now, John's father was a man named Samuel Wesley, and he was a pastor in the Anglican church in England. And his mother, Susanna Wesley, was an incredibly faithful mother of nine children. Can you imagine? Now, Wesley received a classical education and eventually attended Oxford University, and it was there where he became a part of a group of students known as the Holy Club. So these clubs were committed to disciplined religious practice and intentional methods for developing relationship with God. They were, however, ridiculed by others as being Methodists for all the methods they went to to connect with God. Now, in 1735, Wesley embarked upon a trip to America, to a colony uh, called Georgia, just south of us, as a missionary alongside of his brother, Charles Wesley. Now, you may have heard of Charles Wesley. He's penned some of the most beloved hymns in all of our Christian history. Hymns like, Christ the Lord is risen today. Hymns like, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. That's Charles Wesley, John's brother. However, both John and Charles, when they came to be missionaries, did not have the experience they had hoped for. You'll hear more about that in the weeks to come. It was very challenging for them to the point where they returned back to England disillusioned and discouraged. And this is probably a point in John Wesley's life where it was the lowest of the low. He came back confused about everything, wondering about all things. And it was during this time that John Wesley had an encounter with God that became a deep conviction that guided his ministry for the rest of his life. And this is the pillar that we want to look at today. So Wesley records in his journal on May 24th, 1738, he says this, in the evening, I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. Does that sound familiar? I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Martin Luther's preface to the epistle of Romans. Let me make that clear for you. Someone was reading a commentary about the book of Romans, okay? About a quarter till nine, while he was describing the change God worked in the hearts of those who have faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ, Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that, had taken, that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. So picture this for a moment. John Wesley, who was a man who grew up in a religious family, 
had a father who was a pastor, a mother who was deeply spiritual, a man who had attended Christ Church Oxford University. He was an ordained Anglican priest, a man who helped start holy clubs to help people have practices to connect with God, a man who traveled across the Atlantic Ocean to take part in missionary efforts in the American colonies. In this short journal entry, I believe he offers us insight to the heartbeat of the Wesleyan movement. And it takes place during this Aldersgate experience. In short, Wesley, I believe, shows us a genuine need for a conversion experience. A genuine need for a conversion experience. How does a man go from doing all the things that has happened in his life to the point that he gets to Aldersgate to having an experience that changes everything? It was this occurrence in May for John Wesley that caused him to write such things as this. You have one business on earth to save souls. He also said, I want to know one thing, the way to heaven, how to land safely on that happy shore. And Wesley actually made his conviction a prerequisite for joining any discipleship groups in the Wesleyan movement. He said, there is only one condition of those who desire admission into the societies, a desire to flee from the wrath to come and to be saved from their sins. You see, when Wesley had this experience at Aldersgate, it became a tenet of the Wesleyan movement the Methodist movement. And here's what it means for us today. All of us are in need of being saved, converted, rescued, forgiven, salvation. You can describe it however you would like and say it however you would like, but Wesley would say this. He describes it in a sermon called Salvation by Faith. This is what he's talking about. He says, salvation by faith is a sure confidence which a man or woman hath in God that through the merits of Christ, his sins are forgiven, and he reconciled to the favor of God, and in consequence hereof, a closing with him and cleaving to him as our wisdom, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, in a word, our salvation. As we spend time with Wesley this summer, one of the first things we want to look at, and I want to look at this morning, is this, that we need to be reminded that the belief that we are sinful creatures who are unable to save ourselves from our own sinful nature without the intervening love of God and the regenerating power of the Spirit. Otherwise, we are destined for destruction and a separation for God for all of eternity. Now, here's why this is so important. We live in a culture today that has largely had a difficult time defining sin or even recognizing sin. This one tenet has become a very unpopular discussion within the church. To talk about the fact that we do sinful things, we have a sinful life and a sinful nature that only God can take care of. You see, Wesley writes in his experience at Aldersgate that his heart was strangely warmed. His heart was strangely warmed. This was Wesley's spiritual awakening. He came face to face with his own brokenness and finding that trusting in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection was his only hope of being saved from the destructive effects of sin and rescued from an eternity apart from God. And did you catch when this happened in Aldersgate? Wesley comes in rather or reluctantly, he says. He sits down and someone is reading a commentary that is leading up to the book of Romans. They're not even reading the Bible yet. And as someone is reading this commentary by Martin Luther, Wesley feels his heart strangely warmed. He begins to recognize and realize that there needed to be a conversion experience for, for him, something that changed 
everything. I want you to notice something in his life. There were no fancy lights, no well-prepared sermon, no amazing band, no comfy seats, no big screens, no cafe with cinnamon biscuits. Can I get an amen? None of these things. None of this existed in Wesley's experience. All that took place is that someone was reading about the book of Romans and the need of a forgiveness of sin, and it changed his heart. See, one of the things that concerns me within the church today is there are many of us who are very angsty about the fact that we don't have a grandiose spiritual experience. Many would say, I can't point to you at a time where my life changed. I can't point to a certain date or a certain way this took place. Many can. But I think it's a mistake for us to believe simply because we don't have some kind of flashy experience in a church worship service that we've never experienced the, the uh, transformative love and grace and mercy of God. Here's the bigger question. The question is not whether there was music or lights. The question was, is there a change in your life? Is it different before and after? For Wesley, there was. This transformative experience that he had changed everything for him. And the implications of our conversation today cannot be overstated. And here's what I mean. Do you, do I, do we ever look at our own life and does our heart break over sin? When is the last time we looked at our life and our heart was broken over our greed, our lust, our anger, our complacency, our gossip, our perversion, our violence? When's the last time that broke our heart? Or do you or I or do we ever look at a broken and lost world and does our heart ever break over racism, human trafficking, war, addiction, pornography, abuse, abortion, oppression? Does it not break our hearts? Is our hearts not strangely warmed over the work of God within our life over these exact things? This is what Wesley experienced. Has your heart ever been strangely warmed toward the things of God? For me, my Aldersgate experience took place when I was in eighth grade. I had grown up in the church my entire life. I was a part of a United Methodist Church in Indiana. My parents were youth pastors for much of my life. My grandparents were youth pastors before that. I grew up in this church from the time that I was born. I was baptized there. I prayed a prayer to receive Jesus when I was seven years old. And yet, as an eighth grade kid, I was in Mexico in a dump outside of Monterey, Mexico. My parents served in a missions organization called YWAM, uh, specifically uh, Mercy Ships. We lived in Texas. My mom was in charge of taking groups of 80 students multiple times a summer into Mexico for a couple weeks at a time. So as an eighth grade kid, guess what I spent most of my time in the summer? Mexico with my mom and all these kids from around the country. And to be very honest with you, as an eighth grade kid, I had no interest in having a relationship with God. I'd watched my parents sacrifice over and over again. I'd watched um, you know, what it meant to be a follower of Christ. And I just decided as an eighth grade kid, I wanted nothing to do with it. I wanted to live my life on my own terms, do whatever I wanted to do. I wanted these friends to be the people I spent most of my time with, and I wanted these activities to be the things that I did. Now, as an eighth grade kid, I found myself in Mexico, then all of a sudden in this, this dump where there was uh, dump trucks coming in and, and putting trash in over and over again, hundreds of people living in this community. And our team was there building an outhouse for them to have some sanitation to be able to go to the bathroom. So I remember holding a shovel, being in a hole about, I don't know, knee deep or so, digging through layers of trash to be able to get a hole big enough for this outhouse to be built. And I, I can't explain it to you other, way, other than in 120 degree heat, I just looked up and I, I looked around me and, I, and all of a sudden I realized 
all of the arrogance I had in my life, all the pride that I had in my life. I recognize all the brokenness that was in my life, all the sinful nature that was in my life. If you would have asked me, I would have said we came to Mexico to help these people, but the truth was I was the one who needed help. And so standing there holding this shovel, looking around me, I began to realize that I was in need of God's grace, his mercy, his forgiveness. It changed everything for me. Now again, I've been in church my entire life. I made a decision when I was seven to be a follower of Jesus. I had done all these things. I've been in VBS who knows how many times. And yet still for me, there was this experience that I had that changed everything. I went into my freshman year of high school with zero friends. Because I just knew the trajectory of my life as an eighth grade kid is not where I wanted it to go. I needed to have a transformation. I needed to have my own conversion experience, a change in my life. See, what Wesley describes in his writings is something that is actually a very, very old idea. In fact, in the Old Testament, in the book of Ezekiel, we, we read about this prophetic word from God speaking about the future of him redeeming the broken Israelite people. And if you were an Israelite at this time reading Ezekiel 36, this would have given you hope that things could change. And I would argue this morning, it's, it's a word of hope for us today, too. Ezekiel 36, 26, here's what God says. He says to his people, I will give you a new heart. I will put a new spirit in you. I'll remove your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God is prophetically speaking about what's going to happen in the future, and he says, I will take your stony heart, your hardened heart, and I'll put within you a heart of flesh. You see, a discussion about the heart in the scriptures happens over and over and over again, particularly in the Old Testament. Because in the Old Testament, when people talked about the heart, they were not talking about what we talk about in our culture. Typically, when we think about the heart, we think about an organ that pumps blood through our body or some kind of image that you would use to show affection to somebody. But in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word for heart is the Hebrew word lev. Everyone say lev. Learned a little Hebrew today. Good job. The word lev literally means this. It is the core of every human being. It's where thoughts, actions, and our will resides and where it originates. So you see, God's plan all along has been to allow us, our stubborn and rebellious hearts, to become fresh and fertile soil for the seed of the gospel to take root and grow. He promised to take our hardened hearts and to give us hearts of flesh that are sensitive to his spirit and the work that he wants to do within our life. It was a promise to Israel, but not just to Israel. It was a promise to John Wesley. It was a promise to you and I today. See, in Ezekiel 36, God is trying to show the people that he's not given up on them, that he recognized that their greatest limiting factor is their sin, and it's deeply embedded into their hearts where all of their thoughts, actions, and wills originate. The biblical concept behind this, the only catalyst to change here is something called repentance. Repentance is an idea that comes up in the scriptures over and over again. It is crucial to experiencing the kind of salvation that Wesley is talking about through Jesus' work on the cross. I've been so privileged to be able to spend a couple weeks this summer teaching a Bible study to high school students. Some of them are right here. And this past week, one of the lessons we talked about was how to study the Bible by using words within the Bible and digging a little deeper into them. And one of the words we looked into was the word repent. Repent. It's an interesting Greek word. It comes from the word metanoio, and it's made up of two different words. 
Meta, which means changed afterward, and noia, which means to think differently. So to repent of our sin literally means to change our minds. After experiencing God, after experiencing the love of Christ, we change our minds about our sin. You know, if we, we may not even know, but we repent all the time, actually. We change our minds about a lot of things. You know, in my house, I have to repent a lot. Um, there are some times where I want to kind of help in the house, and so one of the things I try to help in is by doing dishes. So there are times where I'll be like, oh, I'll help by doing the dishes. And so I'll, I'll take things and put them into the dishwasher. I'll put the little tab in and put in. I'll pat myself on the back because I'm helping out within the house. Now, sometimes my wife will come into the kitchen. She'll open the dishwasher. She'll be like, Trevor, come here. I know what that means. So I'm like, yes, honey. She'll be like, um, this is not how we stack a dishwasher. I'll be like, well, I thought maybe the pots would go here nicely. That seems to have lots of room there. I mean, the cups maybe right here in this... Trevor, that's not how we stack a dishwasher. You're right, honey. This is not how we stack a dishwasher. I apologize. I repent. I will think differently. That's what repentance looks like. So maybe this happens in your house a lot of times over a lot of different things. But when the scriptures talk about repentance, this is what it looks like. Instead of us believing that we know the best way that we should live, that we know how to make decisions for our own lives, repentance is when we say to God, you know what, God, I will agree with you. I'll change my mind about this and I will agree with you. So when it comes to anything, how to treat our spouses, how to treat our children, how to make priorities, any other kinds of ways that we try to do life on our own, repentance is when we say to God, you know what's best. It's a conversion experience. Repentance brings about a fleshly heart from a heart of stone. It is the very way that our hearts are strangely warmed, the way that John Wesley describes it. And so this prophetic word from Ezekiel in the Old Testament actually comes to fruition in the New Testament with a man named Nicodemus. Now you may know this story in the Gospels, but Nicodemus is a man who is part of the religious elite in Jerusalem. He's a Pharisee, and not just that, but he's a part of the Sanhedrin. So he's a part of the leading crew. He's a teacher of the law. He's diligent in keeping every single letter of the law. And the Pharisees, they often had run-ins with Jesus for a lot of different reasons, but mainly because Jesus was preaching and teaching that all of the laws of God actually pointed to him. He was the fulfillment of all things. And so true relationship with God was not about thinking rightly about things or even about doing all of the right stuff, but it was actually about a surrendering to the Spirit of God through the person of Jesus. So Nicodemus was curious about this. But he could not possibly come and speak with Jesus in the daytime because if he did, someone might see him and he might lose his position as a part of the Sanhedrin and the, the Jewish ruling council. So what he does, the Bible says, is Nicodemus decides to come spend time with Jesus at night. It's the first, like, Nick at night that ever took place. <laughs> not everybody's going to get that. It's okay. So he goes to meet with Jesus to have this discussion. And here's what it says in John chapter 3, verse 1, as Nicodemus comes to meet with Jesus. It says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the signs that you are doing if God were not with him. Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they are born again. How can someone be born when they are already old? Great question, Nicodemus. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. 
Jesus answered, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to the spirit. You should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it is going. So it is with everyone who was born of the spirit. It's interesting to me that when Nicodemus comes to talk to Jesus, Jesus doesn't even entertain his first question. Do you notice that? Nicodemus is like, hey, Jesus, we've noticed all these miracles you've been doing, and we want to know, how is that possible if you are not from God? And Jesus is like, I know why you're really here. The reason you're really here is because you want to experience the kingdom of God. I think there's probably a lot of reasons why we come on a Sunday morning like this. But I think in the end, the best intention we could possibly have is because we want to experience the kingdom of God. How do we do that? How do we have that experience? Maybe for some of you to even sneak into Mount Horb on a Sunday morning, you gotta make sure nobody sees you doing that too. And you come in here because you wanna know, how do I experience the kingdom of God? And Jesus says to Nicodemus, it's like this. It's not about thinking rightly. It's not about even doing all the right things. It's about surrendering to a new birth by the Spirit. To which Nicodemus says, that sounds disgusting. And we're like, yes, I've already been born. How could I possibly make that happen again? And Jesus is like, no, you're misunderstanding the point. It's not, it's not a birth, a physical birth. It's a spiritual birth. It's a spiritual rebirth that happens to happen. And this is what Jesus talks to Nicodemus about. He's showing him what this salvation that Wesley speaks about, this strangely warmed heart, this transition from stony hearts to hearts of flesh. Jesus says it this way, you must be born again by the Spirit. You have to be made new you know, a lot of the messaging that we hear in the church today is this, that you are wonderful just as you are, that you don't have to change because you are loved by God. And I would say, no. That's not the message of the scriptures. You, you have to be transformed. There's no other way. You, you have to have a new heart, not one of stone, not hardened any longer, but one of flesh, there has to be a repentance and agreeing with God. There has to be a new birth by the Spirit of God. This is something that Jesus says to Nicodemus, and I believe is important for us to hear this morning. It's a very tenet of the Wesleyan movement that Wesley began so long ago. We must repent of our evil ways. We must change our hearts and agree with God. We must be born anew. I heard someone say recently, just this week, that the reason Jesus came was to bring unity it's not true. That is not why Jesus came. Jesus came because we have an infection called sin that affects all of us that we can do nothing about on our own. We are sinful people that left to our own devices will destroy ourselves and we must have someone step in to rescue us. That is why Jesus came. He says himself within the scriptures, I came to defeat the works of the devil. That is why Jesus came. So to have a discussion about salvation is not some side discussion, it is the discussion. To have a discussion about conversion is not some side conversation, it is the conversation. You see, the gospel was not meant to come to affirm you, celebrate you, or accept you. The gospel message is meant to liberate you, transform you, redirect you. And the good news is that we have a God who has gone to great lengths to make sure that we can experience him in such a way that we can have new life. 
and be born new. You see, the way John Wesley understood salvation was not as a transaction. It's not just some prayer we pray somewhere along the way, and because we prayed that prayer, then Jesus gives us the thing that we want. And we never do anything else with it. We just wait till one day we die and we make it into heaven. That's not the way Jesus understood salvation. It's not the way John Wesley understood salvation. It's not transactional. Wesley saw it as relational. That there's this new birth that happens. And after this new birth, there are these, these conversions that happen over and over and over again as we begin to know God more and more and more. And the more we know him, the more we love him. The more we love him, the more we're aware of sin that we become. And the more aware of sin that we become, the more we want it out of our life. And the more we do that, the more we live in conjunction with him and in walking with him. That is how we live by the Spirit. This was Wesley's understanding of salvation. It's relational. We don't just pray a prayer and then get what we want, but instead it's not some kind of exchange, but it is a relationship. It's much like a marriage. My wife and I will be married for 15 years this next year. And when we got married and exchanged rings and said I do to one another, we signed the paper, like legally we were married. But I don't know about anybody else in the room, but I didn't feel married. Things changed, but all of a sudden I began to realize that it took a lot of effort to know how to become one. We had to submit to one another out of love and grace. We had to work with one another, learn how to you know, have arguments and be able to resolve them, learn how to communicate to each other, learn how to lean towards each other, to say no to the things I should say no to and yes to the things I should say yes to. It was a relationship that began to build. And it was a conversion after conversion after conversion. The more I realized the ways that I was sinful, and I thought I was a pretty good guy until I got married, and I was like, wow, so many things need to change and transform. And that's God's work. But it takes place through relationship. This is what salvation looks like, according to John Wesley. We enter into this through a new birth, and in so doing, there are these conversions that take place in our life over and over and over again until we become more and more and more like Jesus. I found in my life there are really three different conversions. The first one I would call a conversion of intellect. A conversion of intellect. It's when we begin to trust in our mind that Jesus is who he says he is. And we read the Bible, we could like sword drill everybody to death. You tell me what Bible, you know, what book to go to, and what verse and, and chapter, I'll be there in a minute. I know all the information. You could quiz me and I got it. I know all the information. Intellectually, I've got it down. I could tell you everything about uh, salvation, about resurrection, about grace, about I'll tell you all of it. It's a conversion of intellect. And the second one is a conversion of practice. And a conversion of practice is when all of a sudden we begin to go to church on a Sunday morning, like regularly. We tithe, we serve. We worked at VBS all week last week and took vacation to do it. God bless you. We serve and all kinds, we do all of the right things. We love people well. We give generously. We, we, uh, we are kind to people. It's, it's a conversion of practice. And I would argue there is one other conversion that is necessary, and it's the conversion of spirit. The conversion of spirit. When you look at the story of Jesus and Nicodemus, I'm convinced that Nicodemus had two of the three. He had the conversion of intellect. He knew all about God, this triune God, the one God. He could teach everyone in Jerusalem about it. It's part of his job. And I would argue that Nicodemus had the practice down. He could cross every T, dot every I. He lived by the letter of the law, all of it. But Jesus pointed out for him that even though you have these two things, you're missing out on this conversion of spirit, this new birth, this stony heart to fleshly heart, this repentance. You've got to have it. It is the way to experience the kingdom of God. 
Where my heart is heavy this morning is after serving in this church for 18 years and loving this place and loving these people, there, there are so many that I can think back to over the years who have had two of the three. They've had the conversion of intellect. They know it all. Many who've had the conversion of practice, they're here all the time. They serve all the time. But many of us in the room, including myself, oftentimes have never had this conversion of spirit. And it takes place in our life over and over and over again. A willingness to have the kind of sensitive heart to the spirit to hear from God, to allow him to work within us. That we might be born again. This is the main message of the church. This is actually the whole point. That we would experience a conversion, salvation, rescue, repentance. This is called the gospel. Recently, there was a very well-known pastor and writer named Tim Keller. You may have heard of him. He's written some of the best books I've ever read. And he lost his hard-fought battle with pancreatic cancer. He was someone who was so passionate about seeing people coming to a saving faith in Jesus. And he once described gospel like this. The gospel of Christ is this, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. And this summer with Wesley, here's my prayer that we might be so captivated by his mercy, so captivated by God's grace, by his rescue, that our hearts would be strangely warmed and our lives would be changed. And so this morning, it seems very silly for us to have a conversation about all this and not have the opportunity for the spirit to do his work. So for just a moment, I want to invite you to just close your eyes in your seat where you are. Young, more seasoned in the room, I would ask that our hearts would be tender to the Spirit of God to speak to us today. Maybe even this morning as we've walked through this, like in your heart you know, man, I know all the right things. Intellectually, I am there. Or you know in your heart, when it comes to practice, I'm doing all the right stuff. But maybe for some of us this morning, we've come to recognize that we've never had this transforming experience with God. Not fireworks and light shows, but instead a deep conviction that we have been forgiven of our sins, even us. And we've been made right with God. Let's pray together. God, we invite you into this room this morning. And the truth is, you were here far before we ever came and sat in these seats. So God, we invite your spirit to do a work in our hearts this morning. Maybe for some of us, we've been a part of the church our entire lives, but we know, God, there is work yet to be done. And so we need a conversion experience with you, one that transforms us into the people that you want us to be. Maybe for some of us this morning, we've never even considered the fact that we are in need of your grace and your rescue and your mercy. Either way, God, I believe you wanna meet us here today. I pray that by your Holy Spirit this morning, God, that you would strangely warm our hearts to be sensitive to you. I pray that you would take from us our stony, hardened hearts and give us a heart of flesh. 
I pray that all of us this morning will repent of any sin that we're aware of in our life that would cause disruption in our relationship with you or disruption in relationship with others. And I pray that we would receive with gratitude your grace and your mercy today. Would you soften our hearts right now, God, young and old, to hear from you this morning? So just silently for a moment, I would encourage you to open your hearts to the Lord. And if today you sense that you are in need of a conversion, a transformation, a work of God, no matter what stage you are in your life, I would invite you in just a moment, actually right now, I'd invite you to just stand boldly. Don't worry about anybody else around you. This is between you and God. I just invite you to stand so I can pray for you this morning. If you want God to do a work in your life, to transform you, would you just stand right now? Amen. There's no rush here. There's no judgment here. I'm standing in spirit with you. God, we desire you to do a new work in us. Because we know, God, you want to do a work through us. So you know the hearts of every person in this room this morning, God. Would you soften our hearts to be able to sense you with us today? I want to pray a prayer this morning with our eyes closed. And those who are standing in particular, I'd invite you in your hearts just to pray this with me. Jesus, I ask you to take my rebellious and hardened heart Take it from me and give me a tender heart of flesh. I confess that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I repent of my sin and I want to agree with you. I don't want to just think the right things. I don't want to just do the right things. I want to be born again. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for loving me enough to send your son Jesus to die for me. I want a relationship with you. So God, we give you our lives this morning. We invite you to do a work that only you can do. As we continue to sing this morning, I pray that your spirit would fall fresh on this room. We need you, God. We need to be made new. So Lord, we love you with our whole hearts. And it's in your name that we pray. And everyone together said, amen.